Psalm 74. Uh, it's called a contemplation or an instruction uh, that is written by Asaph, whom we learned last week was a singer in the temple and also played the cymbals, and he was a prophet. And now he's giving some instruction. He had prophetic gifts, and he's giving some instruction. And the background for this psalm is that Jerusalem, the, known as the southern kingdom, has been invaded by the Babylonians. Now, in order to understand how serious this matter is, you'll remember that uh, Israel was ruled by three kings in succession. King Saul, King David, and then King Solomon. Solomon fell into idolatry, the kingdom began to disintegrate, and it divided into two. A northern kingdom, which took the name Israel, and a southern kingdom, which took the name Judah. So this united nation, Israel, is now divided into two. And just like we had in the Civil War in America. And they cannot get along with each other. There are ten tribes in the north. They take the name Israel. There are two tribes in the south, and they take the name Judah. They name it after one of the tribes. The two tribes in the south were Judah and Benjamin. Anybody know who was born of the tribe of Benjamin? The Apostle Paul. So, and who was born of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. <laughs> so you can see that the southern kingdom, which of course you would realize being in Texas, uh, produces some great people. Now, what happens is the northern kingdom is far away from God, and in 721, 722, this great Assyrian empire invades the northern kingdom and just crushes it, just like that. Assyria was uh, a terrible people. When they conquered a nation, they would uh, slice the bodies of their victims open and they would flay them like you would flay a fish. Somehow, we don't need to go into the details, the southern kingdom was spared. About 150, 60 years later, 150 years later, a new empire arises. And that empire is called Babylon. Babylon defeats Assyria. And they invade the southern kingdom. And they take it captive. And this psalm is written either during that invasion or after the invasion of the southern kingdom. So with that understanding, let's take a look at this psalm. And... <clears throat> see what it's about okay? I'm going to divide it this way verses 1 through 11 is going to be our first section and this is where uh, the devastation of Israel is, des is described and what the writer does what Asaph does is he asks God some questions and then he pleads for help based on the extent of the destruction that's section 1 verses 1 through 11 section 2 is verses 12 through 23 and he gives us some reasons why he's questioning God, and then he makes some final pleas. So let's let's take a look at this. Ready? Section number one. He's going to ask him questions. It opens with, with the writer asking God some questions about what's going on. And look what he says. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? 
Now the issue is not why has God cast them off. He's cast them off because they've been bad. And they've been bad for a long time. They haven't been faithful to God. And God basically cast the southern kingdom off. The issue isn't really why has God cast them off. It's the last word in that sentence. Why did you cast us off for what? Forever. I mean, if we've been that bad, that you would literally cast us off forever. And the answer is, it seems like God has done that. And he's not stepping in to deliver the nation. And God must be very angry at these people. You want to find out how angry he is? Look at the rest of that verse. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And the sheep of his pasture, of course, is his people who were helpless in this invasion. Now notice how his anger is described here. His anger is described as smoking. Uh, he is raging with anger. You ever seen those cartoons of someone who's really angry and it's a picture of a head and then coming out of their ears is what? Smoke. Well, God's blowing his smokestack against Israel. He's that angry. And his anger, notice, it's not against his enemies. His anger is not focused toward Babylon. It's focused toward his people. So uh, you know, that's angry. And you're going to take it out on your people. Now, this concept of smoke is a very interesting one because everything that smoke touches, it damages, doesn't it? The ill effects. If smoke gets in your eyes, your eyes burn. Your eyes water, right? If uh, smoke gets in your lungs, you can't breathe. The smoke gets in the air, there's a haze. And there's, you know, the environment is uh, bad. You have pollution. If the smoke gets on items in your house, they're finished. I mean, you have to have everything restored. So, God's anger is described as smoking, and it's against his people. It's the smoke of God's anger just fills the air. And so he's asking the question, have you cast us off forever? Why are you this mad at us? Okay? So now what we have is his first plea to God. And here is what he says, his first request or prayer. Remember, verse 2, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. And he's talking about the exodus. In other words, remember when God uh, redeemed Israel from Egypt. And he brought them out across the Red Sea. He's saying this. Remember when you did that? Have you, have you delivered us from a tyrant like Pharaoh? Now does this allow us to be destroyed by Babylon? Why would you do that? Why would you deliver us and now allow us to be destroyed by another tyrannical power? That's line number one. Remember your congregation which you purchased. The tribe of your inheritance which you redeemed. And uh, that is God has uh, given an inheritance to a certain group of people, and these are the Jews, and he redeemed them. And he says, you need to remember that you delivered us once, don't, so don't cast us off now forever. And he adds something right at the end of verse 2. He says, this is Mount Zion, where you've dwelt. <laughs> don't destroy us forever. This is, this is where the temple's located. This is where you live. Don't destroy your own house, Lord. Don't allow this to go on. You know, 
You would never go out and destroy your own house, would you? I don't think you would. And that's what he's doing. He's pleading, hey, God, this is where you live, up there on Mount Zion in the temple. Don't allow this to happen. That's plea number one. Now look at plea number two. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. In other words, take some action. Don't just sit there. Lift your foot up and stand this stuff out once and for all. This desolation is going on and on. Notice it's perpetual or it's continuous. The enemy, Lord, has damaged everything in the sanctuary. That would be in the temple. Everything that's in the temple has been destroyed. Are you just going to sit there? Do something. Stamp this thing out. That's a summary statement. That's what they've done. They've come in, they've just destroyed the temple and everything in the temple. Nothing is left unscathed. Now he's going to describe the de- devastation, and he's going to describe it in detail. Okay? So let's see what they've destroyed in the temple, for example. Look at verse 4. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. Uh, when they came in and they invaded the temple, they came in with a rebel shout. They came in with blasphemies on their lips as they invade the temple. You know, when, when you have an invading troop and they come in to invade something, they don't come in just going, how do they come in? Charge! See? They get everybody excited. And that's what you're trying to do. And here they are blaspheming God's name as they go into the temple. So that's the first thing they do, is they roar when they go into the temple. They're savages. Look what else they do in verse 4. Second thing. They set up banners, or ensigns, or signs. They come into the temple, and guess what they do? They plant their, their flag. With all those idolatrous emblems, they put it right there in the sanctuary of God, and they desecrate the temple. And that's exactly what invaders do. So that's the second thing they do. Look at the third thing they do. Look at verse 5. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. When they come in, you would think that they were clearing the forest. I mean, they're just hacking and swinging away. And look what he says in in verse 6. And now, with these axes, look what they're doing. And now... They're not breaking down thick trees. Now they break down its, meaning the temple's, carved work all at once. They're hacking away at the sacred sculptures and woodwork in the temple. They're just desecrating. Now, do you know what they're really hacking away at? Do you know what was in the temple, the wood structures that were in the temple? Might be interesting to see. So... I want you to keep your finger here, and I want you to turn over to 1 Kings. When you get there, look at 1 Kings chapter 6. And you'll see what these barbarians are destroying, what artwork and what woodwork they're hacking away at. 1 Kings chapter 6. And when you get there, you look at chapter verse 14. It says, So Solomon built the temple. And this is the temple that they are destroying, the one that Solomon built. It says he finished it. This is 1 Kings 6.14. I'm just going to skip down and show you a few verses. 
Look at verse 18. The inside of the temple was cedar. That's wood, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. So they had some artist carving ornamental buds and open flowers on the cedar. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. Look down at verse 23. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. And they just hacked those into pieces. Look down in verse 29. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim. And palm trees were carved in there, and open flowers. Verse 31, for the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. They were destroyed. The lintel and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood. And he carved on them figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold. He spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the doors of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood. Down in verse 35 it says, He carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers on them and overlaid them with gold. So you can see what this temple was looked like. It was very ornamental. It was, you know, uh, an unbelievable experience. Have you ever gone into a Mormon temple when it first opened? You know, you can only go in for a certain amount of period. And in the Mormon temple, you know, everything is white. And then they have this great big baptismal bowl with 12 bull's heads. You know, have you ever seen one? Anybody see what this looks like? It's unbelievable when you see it. Gold and white, you know. Uh, the Mormon temple, by the way, is, is not used on a daily basis for worship. Mormons don't go there and sing hymns there. These are used for special rituals and special occasions. And the temple in Jerusalem was very similar. Uh, people didn't just go there to worship every Saturday. You know, that's not where they worship, but that's where sacrifices were made and things like that. How about if you lived, you know, 80 miles away from Jerusalem. You couldn't go there every Saturday and worship. You had to worship somewhere else. So this was a very special place. Very ornamental. And so the rebels come in, and you go back to Psalm 74, and they just hack all this artwork to pieces. And you know, uh, it shows you that the Babylonians had no uh, appreciation for the beauty of that temple. Most people, you know, even if you would invade the land, you're going to save those things that have some value. But not these people. You know, if you saw the movie Monument Men, where this group of soldiers in World War II go and they save the artwork that Hitler had stolen, Hitler had an appreciation for the artwork. He, when he went in, he didn't destroy museums. He got, he, he got all the artwork out first, and he was going to keep it for himself because... He appreciated it. These people were worse than a Hitler. The only time Hitler was going to destroy it was when he thought he lost the war and he didn't want anybody else to have it. So these people just walk in, and this tells you something about the mindset of the Babylonians and how evil they were, and how they just wanted to desecrate everything that represented the God of Israel because they were following their own gods, the gods of Baal. So that's the third thing they did. They just hack all the wooden items in the tabernacle. Pieces. Now look at the fourth thing they do in verse 7. Verse 7 says, 
Then they set fire to your sanctuary. Asaph is telling God. You know what else they've done? Let me tell you the extent of the devastation. They set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. It lies in waste. Are you just going to sit there and do nothing about it? You're going to cast us off forever? See, this is the argument of the psalm that Asaph is making. So, it's not enough just to hack everything to pieces. What's the final thing that you do? You torch it and you burn it to the ground. So this is what they're doing. See, they're devastating the holy place. And notice he says, your sanctuary. He didn't say our sanctuary. He's trying to make God... Trying to motivate God. Hey, they're doing this at your house, God. So you need to do something. So you notice that those pronouns there, it's important that you do that. Now the fifth thing they do, look at verse 8. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. Let's get rid of everything that these Jews own. And not only the, the stuff in the sanctuary, but let's just slaughter the people in the city. And they burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. All the places that people worship on Saturday mornings, other than the temple, they just get rid of anything that is associated with God. So, we have opened up with these questions. God, how long are you going to wait to do something? You know? And now he lays out the devastation that has taken place as the Babylonians have invaded Jerusalem. And now in verse 9, we see his despondency. In other words, it's all destroyed. And now how do you feel when you walk through your city and you see everything destroyed? Here's the despondency. Look at verse 9. We do not see our signs. Well, what's their signs? Well, we don't see the altar. We don't see the labor. We can't see the holy place. All we see is their signs in, that were there. Look, we do not see our signs. When you say we don't see our signs, that means that hope, all hope is gone. There's not one evidence that there was ever a Jew in this place worshiping God. We don't see our signs. Now remember what a sign is. A sign is something that points to something, right? Now we've sang a lot of patriotic songs today. How about the Star Spangled Banner? Francis Scott Key, out in the boat, Baltimore Harbor, and he says, talks about the bombs bursting in there. And suddenly with the light in the midnight hour and the invasion of the British army on Baltimore, the bombs burst in air in the darkest part of the night and it lights up Fort McHenry. And what does Francis Scott Key say? Bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our what? It was still standing. We have hope. There's the sign that we believe in. See? He walks through this area and there's no sign. No hope. It looks like Judah is totally destroyed. The southern kingdom is totally destroyed. Verse 9. Look what he said. And there's no, there's no longer any prophet. Nor is there any among us who knows how long how long this is going to go on. How long this captivity is going to happen. There's no prophet in the land. 
No one speaking for God. Why? Because the prophets, we know from Jeremiah, that the prophets were whisked away by the Babylonians and taken to Babylon. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, just whisked away. There's no prophets left in the land to tell when this thing is going to end. We know that, in fact, it lasts for 70 years. We know the Babylonian captivity lasts for 70 years. That means that most of the people who were captive or died, let's say captive in these, the beginning of this battle, didn't see the end of the captivity. They probably died. If they were 40 years old, 70 years later, they'd be 110. And obviously, they weren't living when that was all over. For them, it was life in eternity. The only ones who survived was Daniel, a kid who was about maybe 12 or 13. When the Babylonians came in, they captured Daniel. Remember that? And uh, he happens to live through the whole 70 years. Now he's an 80, 90-year-old man. He's still alive when it's all over. But there's no prophet to tell them, to speak for God, to give us hope. You can sense this despondency here in verse 9. You see that? It's really sense of there's no hope whatsoever. And God's silent. He's not speaking through any. Now this section closes the same way it began, with more questions. This is how the section ends. Look at this. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? How long will he dishonor you? How long will he discredit the name of the God of Israel? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Again, notice the concept of forever. See. Why do you withhold your hand? Even your right hand. I said earlier to Peggy, I was reading the Psalms that God said He would uphold me with His right hand. The right hand represents God's power. How long are you going to withhold your power? Why don't you come in with great power and deliver us? How long are you going to withhold your power, Lord? Forever? And look at this next statement in verse 11. It's very interesting. Take it out of your bosom. Destroy those people. He said, God, you're standing here like uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, you know? Get your hand out of there and do something with it. How long are you going to do so? How long? So you notice it's not why are you doing this? Why do you withhold your hand? It's why do you do it forever? See? Because it doesn't seem like it seems like you should come to our aid. So that section ends with questions just as it began with questions. Now you move to the second section. Okay? Verse 12. And here we're going to have reasons why he asks the questions. What causes Asaph to say, Lord... Are you going to cast us off forever? What causes him to ask those kinds of questions? Okay. So section 2 opens up with verse 12, and it says, Because, or for, God is my king from old. Um, Lord, you've been my king forever. Uh, why are you sort of abandoning us now? I mean, from long ago, you've, you've come and you've rescued us every time. Why aren't you doing something now? And notice, by the way, the pronoun there. For God is what? 
my king. Do you see that? Look at verse 1 of 74. Why have you cast us off? Do you see that? Why have you cast your people off? First section deals with us as a people. The second section opens with the writer talking about me personally, my God. You see that? You won't see us mentioned again in the rest of this section. So he says, for God is my God from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. For ever since there was a people, and when we ever got, trouble on, got in trouble on the earth, you delivered us, you saved us. Whether it was from you know, Pharaoh or whether it was from other invading armies, you worked salvation in the midst of the earth. Notice that salvation is earthly in this context. And then he begins to re rehearse God's great feats from old in the past. Look what he says. You divided the sea by your strength. Now, when you see that, the first thing that comes to your mind is the Exodus, the Red Sea opening. But this is probably not what he's talking about. He's probably talking about creation. Remember when he separates the sea from the land and all this kind of stuff? Remember how he does that in creation? This is probably a picture of God's first major act in history. And he's talking about creation, I believe, because let's listen to the rest of it. You broke the heads of the sea, serpents, in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. You gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountains of the flood. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night is also yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Now, this is probably describing the creation event. And in pagan literature, uh, for example, the Canaanites, they believe that before there was creation, before God creates Adam and Eve and all the things like we think of, the only thing that existed was chaos. In fact, the Bible even says that. It says, in the beginning, the earth was without form and what? Void, which is another word for chaos. Everything was in chaos. And God is now going to eliminate chaos. He's going to deliver, in a sense, the creation from its chaos. That's going to be the first great act of deliverance. Now, the pagans believed that in the midst of this chaos, there were these monsters, sea monsters, one monster called Leviathan, it was a seven-headed monster. All this was mythology. But the writer is saying, okay, I'm going to take the mythological words, and I'm just going to say, you know, in the beginning, God conquered uh, chaos, which was personified by monsters. And what does he do? He, he says, let there be light. And you'll see that in this passage. He gave light. What else does he do? He divides land and water. He makes the sun. And all these things are describing that. So I think without going into a lot of detail, which could get confusing, He's describing basically God's first act of deliverance of earth from chaos. And then, of course, he chooses his people. And he starts delivering them from enemies. Now, we have a new enemy that has arisen. Okay? Not Leviathan, which is part of the fellow. But a new enemy. 
Babylon. Okay? Now watch. Look at verse 18. Remember this. See? Remember this. That the enemy has reproached, O God. He has dishonored God. And the foolish, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Has blasphemed your name. So now he's telling them there's another enemy. And this enemy has reproached God, discredited God, dishonored God, has blasphemed God's name. Okay? So he makes several requests. And look what he does. Request number one. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the what? Wild beast. There's another beast. It's not Leviathan. It's not a sea monster. This beast is Babylon. And what he's saying is, God, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove. That's Israel. Helpless turtle dove. Just like a helpless sheep in verse 1. You know, innocent people to this wild beast, which is Babylon. Okay? Look at verse, end of verse 19. Do not forget the life of your poor for how long? Forever. You see that? So that word forever just constantly comes back into the sun. Don't allow them to conquer us forever. Don't forget us forever. See? Now here's the second request. Look at verse 20. Have respect to the covenant. Here's what I want you to do. Own up to the covenant. Keep your word. You made an agreement or a covenant with Abraham that your people wouldn't be destroyed. Now live up to your word. See? This is his ultimate argument. God, you're the one that established the covenant. You're the one that initiated the covenant. We didn't ask for a covenant. We entered the covenant that you made. Now keep your word. Live up to it. See, he's putting pressure on God to do what God said that he would do originally. So that's what he's saying. Honor your covenant. Look at this. Because before the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Darkness is spreading across the earth, Lord, and there's just no place we can go that's not darkened by these heathen invaders. So he's saying, you know, you're under an obligation to keep your word. Okay? Trying to hold God to his word. Now here's the third request that he makes in verse 21. Do not let the oppressed return ashamed. The oppressed would be the Jewish people who have been conquered. Don't allow us to return with our heads down in defeat and shame. In other words, rise up and defeat our enemies. That's what he's saying there. At the end of verse 21, let the poor and the needy, look at this, praise your name. Don't allow us to have our heads hanging low because of this. Rather, Lord, defeat them so that we have our Hands and our heads raised high, praising your name. That's what he's saying. Beat these guys. Just the same poetic language here. Okay. Next request, verse 22. Arise, O God. Get up. That's what he's saying. Get up, will you? Before he said, you know, raise your feet up. Same thing. Get up, O God. Plead your own cause. Notice how he's using all this psychology. You know, we will all plead our own cause. 
Every one of us pleads our own cause. I might not plead your cause, but I know one person's cause out there. I want to plead my cause. And that's what he says. He says, God, get up and plead your cause. You know, you set this whole thing up. Now fight for it. Look what else he says in verse 22. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. These people, every day they're blaspheming your name. Every day they're dishonoring you. Every day they're discrediting you. You go, how long are you going to let this go on? See? And then his fifth plea is verse 23. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. What voice? Those blasphemous shouts. God, you were in the temple, supposedly, when the invasion took place. You heard those shouts. I hope it rings in your ears forever. Until you finally do something. Don't forget those the noise, the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continuously. Notice, he tells God in verse 22 to rise up and plead your cause because at the end of verse 23, the tumult of those who rise up, they've risen up, see, they've risen up against you and they're doing it and this war that they're raging, look at these last two words, increases, it gets worse and worse and worse and bigger and bigger and bigger. And how long does it go on? Continually. In other words, things are getting worse. That's where that psalm ends. Now this is very interesting to me because the psalm ends with no answer from God. And he doesn't answer. Now, he will answer, won't he? He will keep his covenant. He'll come to the raid, but he'll come to the raid when he wants to come to the raid. And it won't be for 70 years. And he'll raise up another nation, Persia, to defeat Babylon. And Persia will defeat Babylon. And uh, when that happens, there will be a remnant of Jews who are allowed to go back to their promised land and rebuild the temple. And of course, when they do that, they will have learned their lesson, won't they? They'll be obedient to God forever, won't they? No, they're disobedient. You know the story. They're disobedient to God again, and God allows the one evil dictator, Antiochus Epiphanes, to come right in and destroy that temple again. Desecrate the temple. Sacrifice pigs on the altar. Puts his ensign in the temple. And finally the Jews fight and they get their freedom again. And of course now they've learned their lesson, haven't they? So when Jesus comes on the scene, he has to tell them, because they haven't learned their lesson, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And do they repent? No. So guess what Jesus says? You see that temple? What's going to happen to that temple? There won't be one stone standing. And guess what? In 70 AD, it goes down again. <laughs> so they haven't learned their lesson. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with the faithful, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he dies on the cross and he establishes a new covenant. He was raised from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he sends us the Holy Spirit that now gives us the power to keep his commandments. And under this new covenant, he says to his new people, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell, what? Never prevail against that, the temple or that church. And you know something? The gates of hell have tried to prevail against the church for 2,000 years. And it's never succeeded. You know, and the Muslims tried to stamp out Christianity in the 700s. I mean, the Muslim movement was a violent movement in the early days. And it just kept moving westward. From Saudi Arabia and that region kept moving westward and it got right to the edge of France. And in 732, a man by the name of Charles Martel fought a decisive battle called the Battle of Tours. And he defeated the Muslim hordes right on the edge of France. And we heard about France today, Normandy. If Martel would have not stopped the Muslims at that point, the world today would entirely be Muslim. And Christianity would have been stamped out. But God promised the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Get up to modern times. Atheism has tried to stamp out Christianity, hasn't it? Think about communist atheism in Russia under Lenin. So there'll, be, there'll never be even the, the word God even recognized by the Russian people, the Soviet Union, when we stamp out the name of God in the church. And guess what? Soviet Union, you know how long it lasted? 70 years. And when it was defeated, guess what they discovered? Christianity was stronger than it ever had been. It just going underground. Gates of hell couldn't prevail against them. Think about China. When Mao took over after World War II. I had a friend who was a missionary. He was thrown, he was put in prison, eventually thrown out of China. There were one million Christians in China. They said the name of Christ will never be mentioned again. And then guess what happened? Mao died. China freed up and they discovered in 1972, from 1950 to 1972, there were now not one million Christians in China, but there were five million Christians in China without a missionary. And now how many millions are there in China? Well, about 10 years ago, they said 50 million. Now, who knows? There may be 100 million Christians in China. The gates of hell should not prevail against it. Hitler's tried to stamp out the church and put up a crooked cross in place of Christianity. The church stands, Hitler's gone, and so is Nazism. And now we have a new move of Muslims. A radical element of Islam that's trying to stamp out Christianity again. Will it succeed? It'll never succeed because of this new covenant and God keeping his word. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. In parts of this world, let me tell you, we are in low times with regard to the church. There are places where, like in Saudi Arabia, you can't be a Christian and witness. You're out. You know, there are, there are no signs. Like I said, we couldn't see our signs. There's Christians around the world are despondent. There's no prophets today. That's what he says. Our prophets, the voice of the prophets have been silenced. Where are those prophets today who are standing up and speaking for Christ? Where are they? I'm not saying speaking for America. Now, I'm not talking about speaking for capitalism. Where are the prophets that are standing up and speaking for Christ? And calling the church to repentance. You just don't see it anymore. We are at a low ebb, I think, in Christianity. But guess what? We will survive. 
and the church will try and be triumphant, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because God's going to keep his word. And one day, the scripture says, that the kingdom of God is going to fill the entire earth when Christ returns. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. <coughs> and so, even when Asaph says, have you cast us off forever? The answer is what? No. He hasn't cast us off forever. But, as Jesus said, our response when we're at a low ebb to examine ourselves as a church and repent and get on with God's work. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for this song that makes us look at our own situation. We become lax as Christians. We've confused Western values with the church. We've equated the church with America. We've done we've we're getting our eyes off of the kingdom of God and on the wrong things. Oh Lord, help us to, to get our focus back where it belongs. Help us, Lord, to realize that the question is not how long will your voice be silent. The real question is how long will it take us to repent? Oh, Lord, help us to examine our lives as individuals, examine our lives as a church, examine our lives as Christians, a body of Christians throughout the world. Help us, Lord, not to look to you and ask you the questions. We should be answering your questions about why we're faithless and we should be faithful because you indeed are a God, our King of old. You've been true in the past and you'll be true in the future. But there's two sides of covenant. Oh, Lord, you'll keep your side. Help us to keep our agreement with you. In Christ's name, amen.